Welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. I am Justin, and I am here with Alex. Hey, Alex. Hey, Justin. And I'm also here with Noah. How's it going, Noah? Good. We are very honored to have with us a returning guest on the podcast, and his name is Matt, who, of course, joined us from uh, our Ad Astra episode. How are you doing, Matt? I'm good. I'm excited to be back. Yes. And I, I know that one of the reasons we really wanted to have you on this particular episode is because we're going to be talking about a lot of Shakespeare. And uh, I know that probably you and Noah will be filling in the the holes in my knowledge about Shakespeare because I'm <laughs> apparently a terrible English major. I've not read all of his plays Yet, I'm sure I'll rectify that at some point. Okay, I've uh, to be fair, Justin, I've only read 22 of them. So, like, I'm lacking in this department, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I am happy to finally put my English degree to, to, to use. Oh. <laughs> so, this will be fun. <laughs> awesome. So, of course, you might be wondering why are we talking about Shakespeare right now? It's because we'll be discussing the uh, new film from David Michaud, which is The King, which is at least somewhat based on the Henriad, a couple of plays from uh, from Shakespeare, some of his histories that this is apparently adapted from. And we'll also be discussing Shakespeare performances and what we think makes an effective performance in a Shakespeare adaptation. Um, so that should be a lot of fun. But before we get into any of that, we're going to start with our full disclosure segment in which we discuss recent things that we've been watching, be they movies, television, what have you. Noah, do you want to start us off? Sure. Well, I have uh, been seeing a bunch of movies lately, so I'm, I'm finally starting to uh, pad out my, my film list for this year. And one of the movies, in addition to The King that I saw recently, was... And this connects to a number of past episodes we've done in this show. I actually went out to see Maleficent Mistress of Evil. I have made no secret of the fact that I generally loathe the the recent spate of Disney live action movies. I think most of them are just senseless and useless and stupid. Uh, but one of the very few ones that I actually like is the very first one, which is the first one because it actually did something significantly different with the source material and the sequel has just come out now uh, also starring angelina jolie and l fanning and also chuadal igiofor who is one of my all-time favorite actors so i'm always happy to see him in, in any movie and it's a continuation of the last movie where in going in this universe uh, maleficent is actually kind of the hero and had very 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 good reasons for uh, being pissed off at the nearby human kingdom and wanting to take revenge on the king. And it ends with sort of this uneasy alliance between the moor where Maleficent lives and the surrounding human societies. Uh, but that can't last because uh, Michelle Pfeiffer has com comes into this movie as the new villain who is literally allergic to magic and is determined to uh, basically stoke uh, a genocidal war between humans and the moor creatures. Especially the the dark phase, which are we, we learn in this movie, are the type of creature that Maleficent is. And Chuwetel Ejiofor is basically like the, the leader of this whole underground society of dark phase that have been uh, fleeing the encroaching of humans all around the world. Uh, this, much like the first Maleficent, this second one is definitely not everyone's cup of tea. But it's like big and bombastic and colorful 
and campy, but for my money in all of the good ways, I re- I, I really dug both of the Maleficent movies. Now uh, they're very big and messy and strange. And there were so many plot things in this movie where when I thought about it later, I was like, well, that didn't make any sense. Like if the villains wanted to succeed in this, they should have done this and not like, you know, given the heroes 10,000 chances to stop them. But like, that's the sort of movie this is. It's it's big and it's colorful and it's having a lot of fun with itself. And I had a lot of fun watching it. So I actually, for for once, I am actually recommending that you go see one of the Disney live action movies. This one is actually not worthless. Put that on the poster. <laughs> <laughs> actually not worthless. Raves, no offense. <laughs> but no, I like I am on board for the Maleficent series. Angelina Jolie is mwah, just doing an amazing job, just hamming it up um, as one of the, the the classic legendary Disney villains. Um, this is, I mean, it, it's about as perfect a casting as I've ever seen in a Disney movie. So, how is Michelle Pfeiffer in it? Also, like, just super, like, the, exactly the sort of super over the top. One glance at her, and you're like, oh, evil. Just that that type of super campy, over-the-top villain that is exactly what this movie needs. Like, I'm sure you guys remember Charlotte Copley from the last movie, running around in his guttural accent, talking to the walls. Michelle Pfeiffer's performance is in the, in the exact same vein as this. In addition to her, there's also Jen Murray as Gerda, who is basically the sidekick to Michelle Pfeiffer's evil warmongering queen. And... Oh my god, she steals every moment she's in. She's like this this super serious attack dog uh who will just like appear with all these weird weapons uh designed to slaughter magical creatures and she's way too into it. Wow. I can't I can't say this was a film that was really like something I felt desperate to see. Oh, it's <laughs> but, it's it's not going to be anywhere near my top 10 list, but I had fun. I will say just real I really quick, I just looked at the cast list and apparently uh Brenton Thwaites, who played the prince in the first movie, is here uh, replaced by Harris Dickinson, which, in my opinion, is a big upgrade. <laughs> so honestly, uh, that's pretty cool. Honestly, in both movies, the princes are so useless. I didn't even notice that until you said it just now. There's some great tweets of Maleficent and Michelle Pfeiffer's like outfits in the movie intercut with like RuPaul's Drag Race runway oh um, reactions, God. and it like that did a better job of making me want to see the movie than um, the trailer did. But I actually have been wanting to see this; I just have not gotten around to it. It looks really fun and campy. All right, uh, I thought we'd go to our guest next and ask him what he's been watching. So, uh, what's been good for you, Matt? I just saw last Christmas the new um, Paul Fig movie. Um, written by Emma Thompson. And if you follow me on Twitter or Letterboxd, you know that I spend most of my time talking about romantic comedies and fighting for their legitimacy in the film world dominated by straight white men. Romantic comedies were a huge part of my like development as a film nerd, so I really love them. And I've like over the time of me watching thousands of them, I've come to like find that romantic comedies fit into like three separate categories. There's the one end of the spectrum where they're they're bad and they're usually bad because of like outdated gender roles or like a subscription to like the patriarchy that is just not interesting and makes the movie less fun and there's the really really great end of the spectrum where there's a it's a romantic comedy that's effective as a romantic comedy but has some sort of element in it that makes it a quote-unquote capital g great film that i think will be entertaining to people even if they don't like romantic comedies i'm thinking of something like crazy rich asians from last year um where if you're 
if you say you don't like the movie, I think you're lying. And um, <laughs> and then there's the the middle category of um, romantic comedies that I just think work for exactly what they are as these like the, like this comfort food. And Last Christmas is very much in that middle category. I think it's a movie that absolutely will work for you if you want it to. And then if you're not the type that enjoys romantic comedies, then just don't watch it because what would you get out of it? And um, to describe the plot very, very loosely, um, it's about, it stars Amelia Clark um, as this woman who is down on her luck in 2017. It's, it's weirdly set in 2017, which I don't know why. Huh. But, um, it, it, it's important to know. And um, she is a Yugoslavian immigrant who came over to the UK in the early 2000s and she has a really poor relationship with her mother and father um her and her sister are not talking very much either because of some family drama and she was kicked out of her apartment so she's kind of trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life while working at this christmas store um run by michelle yao who's amazing she um amina clark meets henry golding one day who uh, is playing this impossibly nice man who works at who volunteers at a homeless shelter and they just start going for walks together at night and like hanging out around like different parts of like fo- like um photo friendly parts of london <laughs> they start to fall in love and i won't get into the last act even though everyone on twitter predicted where it goes and i don't think the movie is even remotely trying to hide that element of it but i think it's this it's a really entertaining entry into the romantic comedies that feels kind of like a breath of fresh air in its own right it's really old-fashioned not in its morals or anything because it's very much like about life today it's very progressive um in terms of its casting and like it even has a subplot about brexit that doesn't totally work but like at least they're trying to be like they're trying to be political (laughs) on some level but like as a romantic comedy it's like really just charming it's not about like there's there's no sexuality to it, which is kind of refreshing. Like the two of them have chemistry, but more in a 1940s sort of way, where there's no sexual element to it. It's more just like they play off each other very well. There's a lot of like good banter between them. I gave up on Game of Thrones after two seasons. It is not my not my thing at all. But I remember liking Amelia Clark in it for what she was doing, and she's so so good here. Like this is I think the exact sort of role that someone should take after completing a, a series like Game of Thrones that's like so iconic where she's showing off a different set of skills. It really reminded me of early Anne Hathaway, like when Anne Hathaway did rom-coms of just like this really earnest energy that shows that she's not like, that she's taking the material seriously, but also is aware that it's meant to be viewed as comfort food. And it's a, it's a really strong performance. I think Henry mm. Golding, like God bless him for just fully giving over to like, the female slash queer male gaze in this movie like he's just like like my friend and i were sitting there in the theater and whenever he did anything we basically looked like lady bird and julie in the scene when lucas hedges is auditioning for um the school play like just like hand on our chest swooning it was like he's so so cute in this movie and just completely willing to be like incredibly nice and likable and i don't know i just thought like as this comfort food movie like romantic comedies are my marvel movies is how i always put it it's like like i could never watch another marvel movie again and be totally happy but if you take romantic comedies away from me i will riot and i think this movie really works as just like a great romantic comedy the the crowd i was with really liked it everyone responded very well it's had a great soundtrack Mm. as you might expect from the title there's a lot of george michaels i don't know just it just really worked for me i just wish it came out later in the year because 
it's only November like 10th and um, I'm not quite in the Christmas spirit, but who am I to tell Henry Golding that I won't celebrate Christmas with him? <laughs> I mean, the red cups are out at <laughs> Starbucks, so it's officially Christmas time as far as I'm concerned. That is true. I've already had my oh, um, God. like white toasted mocha, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to say really quick, I was kind of surprised that Last Christmas was got like such a mixed response critically. Like I haven't seen it yet, but I just, just based on like your description of it, like the way you're describing it seems like the way they were selling it. So I was kind of curious, like, why do you think that it's been a little more divisive? You know, I think with romantic comedies, a lot of the narrative around them is based on what we're looking for as a culture at the time. Like, I think last summer... You had set it up, which came out like which is such a surprise. And then, like at the beginning of the summer, and at a time when it felt like there was no romantic comedy for quite some time, and um, and then that was followed immediately by Crazy Rich Asians and to All the Boys I Loved Before, which I do think are on like the upper tier of romantic comedies. Like I think all three of those movies have like an extra something in them that make it work for people who might not like a romantic comedy, and especially Crazy Rich Asians, which I think is like genuinely so well made and well done in a way similar to like a devil wears prada of like it just feels like this like instant classic on some level now i think our bar for expectations has been raised a little bit as to what we want from a romantic comedy which i understand and if like i was a professional film critic who was seeing everything and had to review it maybe i would be a little more harsh or something like this just because it is very much playing within the ballpark of classic romantic comedies but i think david sims who wrote reviewed it for the atlantic and is from playing check podcast i think he got it like really correct in his review of just like there's a sweetness here that really works and whether or not you're interested in like that intense level of sweetness will depend on you as a viewer but i don't mind watching something like this I don't know. It works. And it's like, I really do think you know exactly if this movie will work for you. And just like, if you're not a professional film critic, no one is making you watch this movie. So like, like, don't watch it if, if, if you are not predisposed. To <laughs> right. Great. Well, you've certainly piqued my interest in that one. I was uh, like, I, I was just kind of seeing the reviews. I was like, oh, is it like, is this worth the then Like, just honestly, Emma Thompson and Paul Feig, like, I just I'm like, it's got to have something redeeming in it. So yeah, I love Paul Feig. Um, I think he's a really underappreciated director. I think um, Bridesmaids and Spy are like legitimate masterpieces. <laughs> and um, yeah, like I'm just happy to see him continue to do interesting, weird movies. For sure. So I guess we'll go to me next. And uh, the thing that I'm going to talk about is I finally caught up with Steven Universe, the movie. This is certainly not the first time I've talked about Steven Universe on this podcast. I've talked about the show, I think, at least twice, if not more. Um, it's something that's very near and dear to my heart. I think it's a show that's aimed at families and children that, that I think would have been really useful for me as a child, but like now as an adult, I think I can appreciate it even more. But, uh, the film takes place after the end of the last season, just like a, a really quick primer on like the show and kind of what it's about. Uh, the title character, Steven, he is basically defending, uh, the earth along with help of his alien guardians from 
just in general, like forces of evil. That's just a very basic, like sort of setup for what this is. It gets a lot more complicated. There's all kinds of like interesting nuances to it. But this film takes place, it sort of starts off in like a place of relative peace. Essentially, at this point, Stephen has brought peace to the show's universe, as far as everybody's concerned. And he's kind of like just kind of enjoying relaxing, like it's something he hasn't really gotten a chance to do in a while. Um, and then like enjoy and and also what's the other interesting thing about this film is how it sort of it moves up so that so he's actually much older now like several years have passed since the end of the last season which is also going to serve as a setup for the last season of the show where he's like where he's older he's sort of approaching adulthood um start he started out this show like i think he's supposed to be like 11 or 12 so um quite a bit of time has passed and he is visited by uh, another one of these alien creatures. They're referred to as gems, and they're actually all named after different gemstones. This particular one is called Spinal, and without getting into too much, let's just say uh, Spinal is sort of nursing this grudge that she has against Steven's mother. And if you've seen the show, you know that this would not be the first time something like this has happened. It's still this continuing thing for Steven to have to deal with the fallout of all the things his mother has done and other characters have done. Um, but the film really builds upon things that are in the show. This is very much about Steven continuing to be like take pride in being an empath and really seeking to understand other people's struggles and using that as his own sort of weapon as opposed to something more, you know, I guess more obvious. He is someone who seeks to heal others, and he is, he's very genuine in his intentions. What's really interesting about this film is that, unlike other episodes of the show, this is really a character in Spinal who doesn't quite take to those uh, sorts of strategies well. And as we learn more about what happened to her, you start to understand why. And I think it's great to, to show, not just to, you know, not just to kids, but just anyone who watches the show, is that sometimes in the course of trying to heal someone, sometimes there's things that you just can't heal on your own. And there are things that you have to let that person deal with. And that's kind of what this film gets into and sort of throws a wrench into Steven's typical plan when it comes to dealing with adversity. It's got, I think, even though the show has a lot of musical moments, there are a ton of moments like that in here. Like it basically is a movie musical, which means that they took a lot of time to figure out some of these songs. Actually, surprisingly, Chance the Rapper is credited on some of these songs, which is pretty cool. But also just you can see what the new things that they do with animation. Like one of the things I really like about the show is how distinct each character is, not just in terms of personality, but how the animation actually aids in making them distinct from one another. And that's also the case with Spinal in this film. Uh, she moves very much like a character from like an old, like either like Mickey Mouse cartoon or Popeye cartoon. And it kind of like just in the way that she moves and like a lot of her combat strategy, it's something that the gems really haven't faced before. So it makes sense just from like an animation perspective, how she's able to kind of really prove to be a formidable foe. But I just really appreciate how this film just continues to show what's so good about the show. What I love, I think about my favorite shows is how they really embrace change and how they embrace adapting to new things, how characters learn things and then are able to deal with certain things down the line that they couldn't have before. Um, I think all that factors into this film and really sets the stage very well for the uh, actual final season of the show. So it's sort of like the El Camino of the Steven Universe. <laughs> then. 
Yes. Yes. If there's a perfect parallel to Steven I, Universe, I mean, I've heard it's Breaking Bad. I, I have I've <laughs> yet to see El Camino, but I've heard about it talked as kind of an epilogue to Breaking Bad. I don't know if I would say that's like a perfect parallel with Steven Universe, but it's definitely like setting up kind of the the, the end game, so to speak, of the show. All right. So with that, we're going to go to Alex. Tell us what you've been watching, Alex. So today we're going to be talking about The King, which was my most anticipated movie of the fall, unfortunately. Um, oh, and no. I figured I'd close out this <laughs> I'd close wow. out this segment by talking about Noah's most anticipated <laughs> movie of the fall, uh, which is uh, Harriet, the movie about <laughs> Harriet Tubman starring Cynthia Erivo. Directed by Casey Lemons. I saw this movie a couple of days ago, and I have to say it doesn't quite live up to, I think, Noah's very lofty expectations of it. But it is a really solid film, and Cynthia Erivo is just Hmm. undeniably great in it. Uh, The movie basically is just one of those kind of like uh, cradle-to-grave sort of uh, biopics. Um, It plays it pretty safe for most of it. Um, It also has a... Okay. Has an interesting subplot that I wasn't expecting where um, I guess Harriet Tubman is a, was a prophet, according to the creators of this film. And that doesn't really go very like they don't really interrogate that a lot. They just take it as face value that she just spoke to God a bunch of times and that helped like guide her across her journey. And um, that's I feel like maybe more could have been done with kind of exploring that and I'm more interrogating that a little bit more because that certainly has a lot of complex aspects to it. But the movie takes it at face value that she was guided by God and what she was able to accomplish. It kind of makes it hard to argue uh, because she, at least as far as the movie's concerned, just did so many incredible things, um, many of which get under told in the stories about her that we learn in school and things like that and she just as Cynthia Revo plays her is just this incredibly brave dynamic compelling independent fierce person who kind of single-handedly saved dozens and dozens and dozens of lives um, over the course of her own life uh, starting with saving herself and the movie captures it in pretty much the way that you would expect like i said it's pretty traditional biopic stuff the supporting cast is very talented and they do a very good job in the roles that they have but the movie isn't super interested in those characters as much as just being there to support her story uh, which again is fine um, it's maybe not the most personal take of her story, but it's just it's so worth seeing for Cynthia Revo alone because she just has maybe like four or five just total like storm burning monologues that just like set the roof on fire every <laughs> single time. It's just incredible. Uh, I wrote on Letterboxd that I think that you could almost just pare this down and make it into a one woman show of Cynthia Revo as Harriet. And it almost would have been more effective because she's just so incredibly compelling in the role. Like just her standing in a room talking to a bunch of like rich white people about the horrors of slavery, just like totally affected me in a really profound way. Definitely got teary in the movie in unexpected places because Again, it's just it's a very traditional sort of presentation of a story that we kind of 
probably could guess even if you don't know all of the details but she just comes alive in the role and just really just is so compelling and mm. badass and amazing and just like at one point she wears a series of killer hats and it's really yes. cool <laughs> the hat game in this movie is incredible <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure everyone like uh, noah have you seen this movie because I know Justin and Matt have. It's not out here yet. I've not had the chance to see it yet. But so I want to open it up to you guys then, Justin and Matt, who have seen it. Like, what did you think of it? I, I really liked it. I'm a huge fan of Cassie Lemon's directorial debut, um, Eve's Bayou, which is from 1997. Mm. It is one of my, like, go-to recommendations to people with just as just, like, an underseen masterpiece. It is, it's an incredible movie. I, so I, that's why I was excited for this. For two reasons. One, for it just like, I love Cassie Lemons as a director, but also I'm very excited for her to have a chance at like a studio level to do a movie like this because it'll create more clout for her because she's like famously been one of those examples of a director who had a flop and has since having a flop, like struggled to be able to gain the, the ability to make another film for a Hollywood studio um, or even independently because like for many institutional sexism, racism reasons. I'm so I'm happy to see her doing this movie and happy to see the film doing well at the box office. But on top of that, uh, to go back to what you were saying, Alex, about the religious aspect of the movie, that was my favorite part of the film because um, it's so similar to what she's what she does in Eve's Bayou, which plays around with magic realism. And I'm like, obviously, Tubman's faith was a real thing, and something that like really guided her through this impossibly hard period to imagine. But the way the movie incorporates that, I think, is so interesting. And I, I would have liked to see it more, like you said, but um, I just think the way it treats her religion as, like, a magic realism aspect is so well-written and so, like, entertaining and something I did not expect to see in a standard biopic. So I, I really enjoyed that. And Erivo is as good as you mentioned. But I will just throw in that Janelle Monet is also excellent in this movie in a small supporting Yes, part. yeah, she is. She kills in everything she's been in. Yeah, she's such a great actress. And then on top, like, it's, I, I said to um, someone recently, I forgot if it was on a podcast or not, but, um, <laughs> like, we're just, we're lucky to be alive at the same time as Janelle Monet because it's like, like, not only is she so good in every movie she's in, but, like, all of her music's great. She's one of the best concerts I've ever been to. Like, I'm just... Like queer icon, I love her so much. I think she's incredible. Um, yeah, no, I am. I'm with you there. I yeah. anything that she is involved in, I'm there for it. Yeah, I, I love her so much. She and she and, is really. You are right to to single her out. I think that the whole supporting cast is very talented, but she leaves a really big impression in a very short period of screen time, and uh, and it, in a way that I think is very useful for the film because it's not just that she's a charismatic performer, but I think that the example that she sets. Uh, for uh, Harriet Tubman's character in a lot of ways is important for Harriet Tubman's later development. So I think yeah. that it's so I think that it functions yeah. really well. It was very good casting because in that you really only get a couple of short scenes and she really has to make a big impression and she just knocks it out of the park in a way that is a little bit different from how you kind of think of her. I think also because it's like I feel like her performance was just like a little bit more toned down, a little bit more lived in than mm. some of her other stuff, which tends to be kind of personality forward. I don't. You know what I mean? Like it was, it, it it showed a little bit of a different side to her that I thought 
uh, was equally as good as any time you ever see her. It sounds to me like it's a little bit similar to her role in Moonlight, which was also a smaller role. Yeah, I was going to say it's so similar to Moonlight and just that. Yeah, like, that's, that's true. <laughs> it's a really lived in. And unlike Hidden Figures, where I think she's amazing, but like Hidden Figures is her popping like a movie star. And in like in Moonlight and in Harriet, I think she just like knows how to be commanding, but without doing like the movie star commanding it just feels like it's like mm. she's a compelling person and yeah. I, yeah. I i love her god i, I could talk about her forever Incredible <laughs> concert. if you if she ever goes on tour near you see her like she's amazing and also talking about more of the supporting cast like clark peters plays mm-hmm. um uh, harry tubman's dad and he's just incredible as always like you know people might know him uh from the wire but he is just he gives a great commanding performance as the dad and there's like a running bit where he like refuses to look at people when they're doing things mm-hmm. that are like against the rules so that way he could tell the white people that he never saw them even though he was like talking to them and stuff <laughs> without lying and that was kind of like a fun bit that went on through the whole movie also like there was this young actor who i'd never seen before and he really hasn't done very much called uh henry hunter hall yeah who played uh a character called walter who's kind of this like he's just kind of like a, a rap a rap school kind of guy like he just is kind of he's an african-american character who is uh he's not a slave but he kind of like tries to work in like the moral grays or oftentimes not so gray areas uh just clearly just to like get by um and he eventually develops uh into more of a, a well i don't want to ruin his arc but he develops in ways that were a little unexpected, but that actor had so much charisma that I just, I was really into his screen presence and I'm excited to see him in a, in a bigger part down the line and something else. Cause he just like jumped off the screen. As soon as I saw him, I was like, who is that guy? He's great. And he's going to be in Jordan Peele's upcoming Amazon series with, um, Al Pacino and Logan Lerman about Nazi hunters. And I'm very Ooh. excited. Oh, that is perfect. Oh, That's wow. great. Yeah. I didn't know that yes. was happening. That's awesome. Take my money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the reason I'm not getting rid of my Amazon yeah. account. <laughs> I liked Harriet quite a bit. I think my my biggest complaint was just that it was kind of what I expected in a lot of ways. But I think even when you're hitting like a lot of the larger emotional beats that you might expect, there were really like lots of little moments that really worked for me. There's a great scene where it's almost like she's like enveloped in a sunset as she walks from like basically from the south to the north across the border into Pennsylvania, I believe, which I thought was really incredible. Um, yeah. I like a lot of the scenes at night. I think those look really good. You really get a sense of just like, I think when you see a lot of scenes set in forested areas, you always get a sense that like, oh, they've probably like cleared this out so that people could walk through them. These look like really thick. Like they're really trying to fight through all those branches and, and limbs and stuff to get to freedom. It's really remarkable. The white people are pretty much trash in this movie. Like I really wish that we had even like I was happy to see that they weren't as much of a focus as I think if this movie had been made 20 years ago, they would have been. But we just kept going back to like Joe Alwyn mm-hmm. and his like lame mom. And I just really wished that we didn't at all. Like mm-hmm. I would have been happy if we just once she left the first time, if we never saw those characters again. I kind of thought that the way that it, the movie kind of com- finds its conclusion uh, was a little disappointing in that. I kind of just would have rather they just been left once that original set piece is gone. And she could keep coming back and trying to help her family without having the plight of her former slave owners be such a prominent part of the movie. Yeah. I somewhat agree, but I do like 
how that pays off. I don't know if we need all like the drama about Alwyn's farm being or plantation being on like hard financial times, like their their drama with that. But I do like the oh, payoff. Is at the there? End. Did do any of the white characters complain about being economically anxious? No, no, they're, they're not, nothing like that. It's okay. Um, they're, they're very appropriately, of course, the villains of the film <laughs> and shown only in that light, which is important. But um, I will also yes. say something I liked about the movie a lot with how the um, slave owners are presented in the film is that it doesn't like revel in the violence as much as like other films have in the past. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's like there's a good suggestion of it, like. Um, like there's the suggestion of sexual violence, there's a suggestion of um other forms of violence as well, of course. But like, I don't know if you always need to do like what McQueen did, Steve McQueen did with Twelve Years a Slave, of like really showing it in the most graphic form. There's a place for that, but I don't know if this movie needed that. And I'm happy that they just stepped back and let it. Like, <clears throat> we, we all know, we all know what's being implied, but we don't need to like see because that, that's alienating. I think, and I, I'd rather this movie be like this movie be shown in schools for like, and for audiences that might not have the stomach to sit through something like 12 Ways a Slave. So I'm happy that this movie exists in its like PG-13 state. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that a lot of times you get the sense of what the violence is just by kind of lingering on the slaves' bodies. Um, and you so you can see mm-hmm. the toll that the violence has taken without actually having to like submit the audience to it. Yeah, there's a sort of matter-of-factness mm-hmm. to it that I really appreciated without kind of like... Uh, without sensationalizing it. We've had a lot of things to say about what we've been watching recently, and I'm sure we're going to have a lot of things to say about The King. So I guess we'll just start kind of how we do, just kind of give our, our general takes to start off with, and then we'll probably, I'll, I know there's some other things I wanted to ask about. Noah, how did you feel about The King? I dug it. I liked it a lot. Okay. This is definitely a much different take on the material. I mean, people say like, oh, it's it's based on the the Henriad plays from Shakespeare. It's loosely based on the Henriad and, and really mostly it's mostly Henry V with bits of the the Henry IV plays uh, like in the beginning. Um, but very quickly, it settles into like the Henry V storyline of Timothy Chalamet succeeds his father, becomes the king of England and immediately uh, intrigue and beef with um, France start to kick up. And that leads to his invasion of Normandy and leads to the famous battle of Agincourt, which is one of the most famous battles in all of history. And it's certainly one of the most well-known like major English victories and one of the most notorious French defeats, but like, it's clearly not Shakespeare and that there is no attempt to like use the language of the bard. So like, it's the story of the Henriad, but it's very much not the language, which for me is like a core part of what makes something in heavy air quotes, like a Shakespeare adaptation. Hmm. Yeah. I think there are like a few moments of, um, I don't know if they're actually from the plays themselves, but I know like there's a, there are a few moments of like, at least an attempt at like poeticism, but yeah, it's like for the most part, it's pretty, uh, loose, loose attempts. <laughs> My wife did not get why I laughed so hard, uh, before the battle where Shamalee turns around to his men and is like, do you expect a speech or something? And I just started <laughs> <Yeah>. howling. <laughs> and she's like, what, what's so funny? I'm like, 
he's obviously not going to do it now, but the St. Crispin's Day speech is like one of the it's most like famous the Shakespeare monologues. Every single battle speech, like, subs, like, like Braveheart would not exist without that. Yeah, like it's one of the all-time Shakespeare yeah. monologues. How about for you, Matt? Because I know you, you had a very visceral reaction to this film. I did. Um, yeah, so there's definitely no Shakespeare in this in terms of the language. I majored in English and I am a huge Shakespeare nerd. And for me, I almost think it's like genuinely insane to not use the language when you're adapting Shakespeare, even with his historical plays, because what the genius of Shakespeare is that his storylines are melodrama at their most basic form. But the poetic language is what turns it into a Shakespeare tragedy without that or a comedy or whatever. Without that, you're just left with melodrama and that melodrama then could be crafted into something really special or it could be crafted into something really bad depending on who's writing it and directing it. And in this case, I just think there's no even attempt at poetry in it to a point where I almost think what's the point of this movie except to make it like this macho, visceral battle movie but even then i think it's a failure on that level because like none of the battle scenes except for one fight between two um characters is really even interesting and the final battle is i think so poorly filmed and um like amateurish it just it to me it just reeks of this like classically heterosexual mindset of like well i don't want to do anything flowery or anything too like theatrical and it's just like it's like, well, then you missed the point of the play. <laughs> I, I just question what the point of this movie is, who it's for. And then just like, if you're going to try to do Braveheart with this storyline, which is like, I guess fine. Do it better, like get better performances, because I think most of the performances from very talented actors are bad. I think mm. Timmy is awful in this movie. Um which I can get into later, but like everyone is doing so poorly and it. it's so boring and like needlessly macho in its execution. And I just fully, fully hated it. I'm like on every oh, wow. level that I could. It is one of my least favorite movies of the year so far, right there with Joker and um, Gemini Man and Hotel Mumbai. Oh. May I posit the reason why I dug the film so much is I think that was the point the film is actually undercutting and subverting all of the, like, this melodrama masculine bullshit by pumping it up to 11, but deliberately making it seem so obviously fake and stupid and unnecessary. And why are all these people dying? Because someone gave you a fucking sports ball, and that counts as an insult to your manly honor. Like, the whole time we were watching this, my wife was sitting there like, oh my god, these men are so stupid. <laughs> What if, if there were just one or two women there, then like none of this would be happening because they would like talk sense. And I just I love the fact that I, I feel like nothing about the story is a spoiler. Like the, the historical fact of the Battle of Agincourt is centuries old and the, the broad outlines of the Henry V story are pretty universally well known. Um, so I, I don't think there's any need for a spoiler warning, but I love how you go through all this and the movie treats everything as deadly serious. You know, all of the diplomatic insults and faux pas that lead up to the battle. And then right at the very end, like right at the moment that's supposed to be Timothy Chalamet's triumph, a woman finally walks in and just basically says to him, hey, you got played. A lot of people are dead for nothing. How's it feel? And the end of the movie is him actually having to confront that fact 
while people outside are chanting and screaming his name over his, in air quotes, great victory. I disagree with that take, though, because I think that that like what you said could have been interesting. But that's not the movie that we saw, because the entire time Timothy in the film is presented as someone who is kind of over this and wishes that he wasn't having to do this and like has no interest in it and realizes that it's all nonsense, but his hands are kind of, kind of tied and he's really just kind of like dour and depressed and has no emotion almost the whole time. So he's not this person who got like wet, like got swept up in a frenzy over this conspiracy. It's like he kind of had his hands forced and he begrudgingly did it the entire time. And then it came out like, not oh, well, just begrudgingly. He was pretty begrudgingly like- through the whole film about it until the only time that he ever cares is when they crown prince kills those little kids. And then he's like, all right, now I want to kill him, which he didn't bring up to his uh, betrothed when she was talking to him and was like, why did you do all of this? <laughs> like, that was the only time that he ever cared about the battle, really, as far as the movie's concerned. So I don't really think think that that point is i don't know if i quite agree with that that's my issue with the film to a degree as well i like i'm sure that like your take on the film is what they were going for i just think they should try harder to make that the, <laughs> like the explicit point david mccod's direction i might be mispronouncing that i'm famously bad at pronouncing names um <laughs> like his direction is so pedestrian and like detached to a point that is just like insane to me and then if you want that to be the point of like it's all for nothing it's all masculinity like going over the top and then um nothing being accomplished or it all being for naught like you need to explore that more in the dialogue and the dialogue in this film is just so much there to like 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 get from point a to point b there's no i'm not even saying like mimic shakespeare even though spoiler alert shakespeare does a lot of these themes um like like at least attempt some artistry with it like it's like like we mentioned before with Timmy's like non-speech. That's not interesting writing. That's just like not wanting to write. And it's like <laughs> it's like then don't tell the story. Like I I don't understand if anybody had any actual point of view in this film beyond the most like the most obvious take for it. If they did, it did not come across in the filmmaking. I kind of agree, and I think that like Chalamet is very one note, and that like really hurts me to say because. I've never disliked a performance of his. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's maybe my favorite living Stop actor. Stop the presses. Alex doesn't like Shabali anymore. <laughs> but he's just, it's, he's just like, oh, I'm just like a sad kid who like doesn't like my dad and like wishes that I didn't have to deal with all this nonsense. And that's like him for the whole time. And it's just like, I don't know if there, I know and like he's capable of so much more. He's capable of a lot of things that would have made this movie and that character in particular more interesting. Like he's this person who's like, a renegade outsider who's like not who doesn't play by the rules and cares about the people and not all of this court nonsense and none of that comes across in his performance i mean his performance is very much of a piece with the rest of the film so i feel like he was trusting his director in creating this tone and this atmosphere of this like self-seriousness and dourness and it just really undercuts the material in ways that i don't think is subversive i just think is boring I mean, I would not I would not say that any of the performances in the movie are like among the best performances of anyone in the cast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm not saying like I'm not saying I loved this movie and thought it was great. 
I'm just saying I was there for the ride. So this is a movie that I would enjoy, like in theory, sounds kind of interesting to me. And actually just in some of the smaller touches works on that level. But just as a film for me overall doesn't. And I know like we've talked a little bit about like how it does seem like there is a deliberate approach here. That was actually something I wanted to ask you guys about was just like, it seems like he's he's going for something very deliberate here. But I think my question on watching this is why is this the story that he wishes to um, use that approach for? Um, because hmm. I, I understand there's, it's like he's trying to undercut the sort of like grandeur and frankly, like pomp and circumstance that is typically associated with these kinds of stories. And on like one level, I can definitely appreciate that. But on the, at the same time, I don't know if that makes an interesting movie. I feel like not having read The Henriad and watching this, I get a sense of like, oh, this would be an int- I could see how this idea would be interesting in the play and that there's probably there's probably like more than one angle here but there's just a monotony to this film that i think doesn't make it very yes. interesting even though i think it is on purpose and that's it's even down to like an aesthetic level everything is brown yeah um pretty much like all the time <laughs> and you know it's, it, to the point well, where most it, people agree that england is usually brown most <laughs> of the time so yeah, and i understand that's like i again i understand that's probably deliberate i like the fact that like a lot of the interior scenes in this film are in these places that feel like they're made of like wood and look like kind of like rickety and almost like they could collapse at any time so i appreciate like that like little touch but just like overall i just think it just Mm. emphasizes this this the monotony of tone that i think the film really suffers from and i think also just like kind of spells out stuff in a way that really i think shakespeare is really good at avoiding (laughs) he's really good at sort of opening up his language really opens up in a way for multiple interpretations um, which is part of why it's survived for so long. And here, I just feel like I felt like they were taking elements from the play that they liked and kind of saying, okay, let's do this thing. And now we're going to have Lily Rose Depp just totally dress him down. And that'll just be something that the audience accepts. And I just, I guess it's just not as interesting to me, just knowing the experience I do have with Shakespeare. And I think, I think they kind of missed the boat on, on this one. Yeah. It feels to me like this movie is made by somebody who read Shakespeare in high school but didn't like it <laughs> and um has this like <laughs> understanding of his plays like you like you mentioned Justin like pomp and circumstance and everything like it's this idea of like this very traditional idea of Shakespeare being done with like stodgy British actors on stage and it's all like people in like extravagant and very costumes. solemn and sober so, tones and right and it's mm. like that is so far from the brilliance of Shakespeare. Like I always say, like I I, I did a I wrote a paper on this in school. <laughs> I'm being such a nerd. <laughs> um, like one of the best Shakespeare adaptations I've ever seen that fully understands the play better than most other adaptations is Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. It is this play that obviously, like aesthetically, is as far removed from what Shakespeare in, like envisioned for his story. Um, it's set in like 1990s Venice Beach, California, with like alt rock in the background but it gets the nuances of that story so fundamentally and like in a way that is insane and most traditional costume versions i've seen of Romeo and Juliet miss like it's like it's so that's why i just struggle with the movie so much in like it's trying i think to subvert the shakespeare formula but it's subverting the wrong idea of the shakespeare formula it's like the most basic subversion and that i'm like if you spend any time following 
the theater scene of Shakespeare productions, you'll see that people are doing such interesting, exciting things with Shakespeare beyond what this like boring idea of it is. Yeah. And I just like, it's like all my biggest pet peeves with theater and film and um, literature in one film. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can see where you guys are coming from. I, I guess this film worked for me on a level that it didn't work for you guys. That is, yeah, I think that's very clear. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I did find particularly effective, though, was actually the final battle sequence at Agincourt in the sense that I felt it was really convincing and effective in conveying just how brutal and non-glorious and, yeah, mostly just very muddy, like medieval combat actually was. I found it effective in a similar way that Game of Thrones, mm. what a lot of people agree is one of the better moments in the later seasons, is the Battle of the Bastards. For really conveying the sense of like this type of battle where the armies become so packed together that like you're just as likely to die from being trampled by your own men uh, as you are from getting like stabbed by the enemy. And you get the same feeling, this like claustrophobic, everyone's covered in metal and mud and like are probably giving each other more concussions than they are stab wounds by just <laughs> wailing away at each other in the mud you know one because those were the conditions under which agincourt were fought um and two that's how a lot of medieval combat was in heavy armor it was people just lumbering at each other and mostly just wailing away until one of them tired out first yeah i don't know i, I really i feel like that the choreography on that what and the way that that was shot was honestly not a, a highlight for me. It did remind me of the Battle of the Bastards, and I think Battle of the Bastards did this exact same thing much better, namely because you could see what was happening. Like the the cinematography of the of that scene in the King is so murky, and it's everything is so so gray and and brown and overcast and everything. So you, <laughs> and you're trying to track uh, Chalamet's character, but it's it's for me at least it was very difficult to. And see, I think that was just, the point. And though. I just like that that was the I, point. But like to what end? You know, like I get like oh, it's like really intense. Like okay, fine. But I just <laughs> I just feel like you if you can't see what's happening, then like who cares? I get like there's the fog of war and stuff. I understand. I think the fog of war is the point. But I don't think that's a very profound point to make, honestly. <laughs> and I just feel like some of the choreography was very clunky. Like at one point, it just seemed like the guy was just like on top of Timothy Chalamet, and it was it was clear that he was just like a stunt guy who was just sitting like there and then he like knocks him off and it's like it, there was nothing like it felt like it was going for something that was like very visceral and masculine and just like muddy and gross and it just kind of landed flat for me I guess yeah. the only scene that I really liked in terms of a battle scene was the scene earlier in the film where he goes uh, head, like yeah where he yeah. goes head to head against that one oh, rebel okay. in place of his yeah, I think that that's, that's also that fight scene works scene. really well. That's a great. That's like the best scene in the movie. Also, I agree. the death and of Robert Pattinson was amazing. <laughs> I don't know. That felt oh. a little self-conscious to me. But the but the scene that we all agree was good uh, was good because it gets across every like the entire theme of like all of the themes in the movie in just like a like four and a half minute fight scene. Like everything is there. Like it's very clear. It's very like interestingly rendered and dynamic. And it's like the futility of war and masculinity. And like there's like the, it's like this big pomp and circumstance leading up to it. But then the fight is really dirty 
and and doesn't have a lot of artistry or poetry to it at all and it's just kind of messy yeah. and and it seems like at various points anybody really mm. could have won and it just happened that uh Chalamet's character happened to get the knife in at that one moment and and like it's all right there I feel like he could have just made a short film about that moment and told the entire or everything that he actually, wanted to I say think about that the is movie pretty interesting actually that that would be an interesting angle to take it like just do a short film about that part of the story I have to say I was slightly disappointed from a historian's point of view um that they did not go full-on historically accurate with the military strategy at the Battle of Agincourt because, now we're going to go into the history corner, children, the famous English bowmen were so riddled with dysentery at the time, and one of the side effects of dysentery is that you have to pee, like, all the time. So a bunch of the English archers before the battle basically went into battle with no pants or underwear on so that they could just relieve themselves as needed and not have to, like, fumble with their pants and they could just keep shooting the whole time. That may have been a distracting choice, I think. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> the past Honestly, was gross. It would have, for what he's going for, it might have been so, I mean, you know, that <laughs> just based on, like, you know, if he really is trying to take all the romance out of war, it's, you know, that I think that would probably help. Yeah, I, I wanted to go back for a second just to that, the the duel with Hotspur, because I think, I do think what made that, that scene so good is it really did feel like either of them could have won and whoever the winner is was kind of arbitrary, mm -hmm. you know, just like just having the right sort of opportunity. I mean, the fact that he slays Hotspur just with like his second weapon as opposed to his first, again, kind of just like takes the nobility and We've sort of been dancing around and I think we've mentioned a few things, but like, do we want to talk a little bit more about the performances here? Because I know that oh I, I agree with you, Matt. <laughs> I think there are a ton of like, there are a ton of people I love in this. And I just, I'm like, yeah, this wouldn't be the first, <laughs> this, w I don't know if this is the thing I would show in the demo <laughs> reel necessarily. No, yeah. I love Timothy Chalamet so much. Like I think most people do. Um, I think I think he's an incredibly talented actor. Mm -hmm. I think his performance in Calling By Your Name is one of like the best performances in recent memory. And he's also been great in movies like Miss Stevens and Lady Bird. But he's a technical actor. He is someone who literally like went to LaGuardia High School and is like classically trained. And I think the problem with someone who's classically trained, not a problem, but something that's like important to consider is like you need to be directed in a way that understands that. Like, and understands where your skills are. And I just don't think David McCod is capable of that with him. Like, it reminds me a lot of his performance in Beautiful Boy, which I know Alex is a fan oh, of. Oh, yeah. But, um, I am as well. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I, it, to me, those these performances are very similar where you can see that he's just like, he's a very talented actor, but the director seems to be having him go back and forth, especially in the King's case hmm. of between talking normally and then shouting. And it's like, that's not interesting or dynamic or even a good use of his skills like it's not quite what i think works for him like it's not like in his best performances the scenes that work are the ones where he's like yelling or shouting or doing like a, a quote-unquote oscar reel i don't know i think he's not the worst performance in this movie i think he's he's fine he's a talented actor this will not hurt his career or anything like that but i was a little disappointed i will say though in context of the film the bowl cut worked for me and mm. i was like oh wow like <laughs> good good hairstyling on this one it emphasizes cheekbones i was actually thinking the same well, thing i mean Matt. it is historically accurate so 
He, I saw him give an interview where he was like, yeah, when they were like, oh, yeah, you had to have that haircut. And he was like, yeah, I wore a lot of hats during production because it was so embarrassing. I think he looks great with it, especially once it grows in a little bit. Like, it looks, it's a pretty good look. Um, it was uh, the first time I fully got him as a sex symbol. I'm like, okay, I get it. I'm like, I was like, I'm like, it clicks. I think going into this, I wasn't, it's funny because I don't feel like, it's interesting you talk about his classical training, Matt, because I feel like one of the things I really love about him as a performer is I, I feel like he's so easily natural in a way where like I don't even question that he's acting. Um, that's part of what I love so much about Call Me By Your Name and and some of the subsequent performances. And, and here it is like, it's this weird thing. And part of it is because of the screenplay where it's like sort of pitched between trying to be like a little more natural, but also wanting to be kind of like more regimented in its way. I don't know. It was, it was one of those things where I was like recognizing as like so much of his line deliveries are not just like, not just quiet, but like mumbling to the point where i'm like are the people in the scenes he's in can they even hear him because it's just like it's crazy to me like that he would talk like and i understand like part of that is because i think they're trying to say well this is a guy who never wanted to be in this position but at the same time i'm like but he still does like he is still growing into this role like there's still isn't there just like a little bit where he like kind of has to realize like the gravity of the position and like kind of adjust his his oratory a little bit more and i just i mean i guess like i do feel like it is kind of pitched between like mumbling and shouting and it's just yeah it, and as opposed to other films i just feel like because so much of that dialogue is 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 mumbled Honestly, anytime there is like more emotion, I almost don't buy it as much because <laughs> it just doesn't seem to fit with what's gone before. <laughs> Some of the other performances, uh, I don't know how we felt. I was as I was watching the film, I kept thinking, I wonder what the other guys are going to think of Robert Pattinson because he is definitely making some choices. <laughs> Or maybe a choice with that accent. <laughs> he's fun in the movie, but that's not the movie that he's in. So it, it makes me wonder, like, yeah. I just really I would have rather seen the movie that he was starring in, though, for sure. I am here for Robert Pattinson in this film. I sat in the couch. I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm watching, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I want like Robert Pattinson is someone who I really, really like. I think he's so good in The Witch. Not The Witch, The Lighthouse. I keep doing that. <laughs> um, he's, he's so, so good, good in The Lighthouse. Didn't even, didn't even recognize him. He actually plays Black <laughs> yeah. Phillip in The uh, in the Witch. Yeah. You just didn't realize. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> please. He, no, he's so, so good in The Lighthouse. Also talk about a weirdly sexy performance. But um, <laughs> here it's just like, I don't know. It's such like a... A miscalculation. I think when your performance becomes a meme that quickly, it's like it's not a good reflection of your performance. And like Alex said, I'd rather see the movie he's in, but it's not one of those of those cases for me of an, a performance elevating a movie. It's one of those where I'm just like so frustrated, mm. where I, and he just shows up so late, where I'm just like, "What is this? <laughs> like, it's like, like, why are you here now?" And it's just, it's, it was disappointing for someone who I think is genuinely so talented. Well, and I've heard a lot of praise also for like Lily Rose Depp's performance. Yeah, like that was the big thing that I heard out of this movie was like, "Oh, she's really good in it." It's like she has like two scenes, and they're both pretty short, and they're both just her being like. Yeah, you're a fucking idiot. And like, she's not wrong, but it's like, okay, I don't like, what was everyone so impressed by? Like, she's not bad, but she's just like, doesn't have yeah, she, a I, character. She's fine. 
<laughs> like, I, yeah, it's, I think she's fine. I think it just indicates like how much this movie had nothing that like these <laughs> like very small minor performances are what people latched onto <laughs> as they left the initial screenings of it. Because it's just like if that's your takeaway, like, oh, she's really good in the one and a half scenes that she has. Like, it's like, OK, then there's something wrong with this movie, which is two almost two and a half hours long, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's pretty rough. <laughs> I also want to just say Joel Edgerton who wrote the I think yeah, he, he co-wrote wrote the, the film, film yeah. and is out yeah he co-wrote wrote the film, yeah. and he's he's in it of course it is so weird to me the way he just fluctuates back and forth between like being I think genuinely good in a movie and then being really bad and I think he's bad here and I also am just kind of like stop writing movies <laughs> like, yeah like, just be just be in them please like I don't know I well he's very withdrawn and Falstaff is like the like there's an adjective falstaffian for like larger than life characters with huge appetites for you know everything hedonistic and that is very much not this performance right it's one of those it's, an, it's another example in this film of just totally missing the point and subverting the character and i feel like they're trying to make like this is a realistic version of this character and i'm like that's not interesting and especially <laughs> like joel edgerton is someone who i think is really really good at being like quiet in a yeah. movie. I think like I I am a huge fan of his performance in Loving Actually, which mm-hmm. I know is a movie that not everybody likes, but I think he's really brilliant in that I'm with movie. You. He was actually my personal win for best actor that year. Here I'm just like I don't I don't know. I feel like this is a miscalculation, and oh uh, god, I just like I want to root for him. But not not a fan. (laughs) Well, and the thing is, is that if you're like judging whether that performance is a success, I think that the one thing that that performance has to give you is a believable sense that he has a relationship with Timothy Chalamet's character. And that never comes across on screen at all. Like there in no moment do you think that these two are friends at all. It's just like this weird old guy who like he used to drink with. And it's like if that really that relationship seems pretty important to the to this movie working and it just doesn't at all like there's no chemistry between them there's no like dynamic between them that feels real that feel there's no emotionality between them at all it's just like oh he's just there and and then like they have a couple of scenes together and then he dies and it's just like okay like i don't know it just it feels like a total failure on that point i was initially intrigued by the fact that they had him in for the entirety of the story because so there's henry the fourth parts one and two and that's before henry becomes king and he's just gallivanting across the English countryside with Falstaff. And then in Henry V, Henry actually becomes king. Right at the beginning of Henry V, Falstaff dies, which like a lot of people consider to be one of like the worst like early twists that Shakespeare ever put in, in a play because Falstaff was such a beloved character. And then he just get like he gets killed off off stage at the beginning of Henry V. So I was really intrigued at first, like, oh, okay, they're clearly keeping him around. Well, all right, that's different. That's interesting. But yeah, like, especially once the military campaign gets going, then Falstaff gets noticeably less interesting. And especially when you when you consider, like, that so many scenes later on hinge upon this apparent relationship that Henry V had with Falstaff. It really does make those moments, like, not work. That's even, like, a huger part of this. And, like, I feel like they don't do enough with, like, his relationship with his father and addressing the complexity of that or with his brother. I just, yeah, it, it for those moments to work, even though I understand it is like this more understated approach, there still needs to be that emotionality for the film to work at all. And I think that's really a huge missing component here. 
there's no investment in any of the relationships that are on screen. And that really like robs you of any personal investment in anything that's happening, in my opinion. And I, and I also, I do want to second uh, Matt's uh, <laughs> statement that Joel Edgerton should stop writing movies because it definitely doesn't help him at all. I, I don't know. I didn't see The Gift. A lot of people liked The Gift. I thought that the screenplay to a beautiful, uh, to Boy Erased was definitely the worst part of that movie. It really mm-hmm. like never ratcheted up the emotions enough. Like there was just, there was just something lacking in that movie. And I feel like it was definitely script problems. And here's the same thing. There's just no, there's not enough mind out of these relationships and without relationships, like what are we doing? We, it's just like this idea of like brutal masculinity, which like fine, but that's boring for two and a half hours. Like you need to be invested in something beyond that. The whole core of Shakespeare's work um, be- especially because of the fact that they were stage plays, especially being done in a time and age where, you know, technology and the ability to do spectacle and effects was obviously extremely limited. It's all about the relationships between the characters and then all of the commentary on themes like gender roles and sexuality and politics and religion and, and, and that's all between the lines. Yeah, I think the issue with the script here is that Edgerton does not have an interesting I'm just gonna sound so mean, but like I don't even mean it as harsh as it's gonna sound, but like Edgerton does not have an interesting enough point of view as a writer to do things with this. Like I, I like The Gift, his first thriller, um, which I think is a pretty effective movie that gets a little too sadistic yeah. at the end, but is worth watching. But Boy Erased, which is a movie that I I like on some for some reasons, but it's A, very much clearly written by a straight person who cannot actually understand the queer experience and um be just like done in this really rudimentary way where it's just like it's a classic social issues movie but without a really powerful point of view besides abuse is bad and then here it's like if you're not going to use shakespearean language you need to do something with it and he's doing nothing with this and it's just it's it's not interesting it's not i don't know he he needs to either hone some sort of style or completely step away from it because I just think he's a compelling actor and I just think it's like you don't have to do both (laughs) like no one's making you so it's like (laughs) I don't know yeah I also just feel like uh, Sean Harris has to stop playing villains um it's like (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if that character was supposed to be like a like a question mark but it never ever felt like he was like it was very clear from the second he appeared on screen that he was going to double cross everyone involved and he did and so like I don't know if that was supposed to be a mystery or not but that's something that is not at all Mm. in the Henry Ed plays like there is no double crossing in the henry plays like there is a straight up conflict between england and france and uh the the mighty englishmen defeat the defeat the the weak french it's not that sean harris is bad as a villain it's just that it's so obvious at this point and we've seen it so many times he, he has that squint that evil squint <laughs> Did, was that a problem for either of you <laughs> again i think most of these performances range from like fine to like eh, whatever but um or like actively bad he's more like the eh, whatever i i don't know his filmography well enough to know if he should stop playing villains but he's you know. all he always plays a villain <laughs> i'll take your word for it I'm just, <laughs> i feel like a lot of british actors get stuck in that in that rut especially with american films I've seen him do some really great, like, it's not that he, <laughs> I'm, I can't think of another role where he hasn't played, like, some sort of villain. I guess maybe Southcliff, that's not a movie, but 
and he honestly doesn't have as much time in as as you would think. Um, but uh, he's done like he he does fantastic villains. I mean, I don't know if any of you have seen Seventy One, where he plays this British soldier who is like behind enemy lines in Northern Ireland in the early seventies and like totally corrupt. And he's like really terrifying. Just like he's so like his intensity is like really just like leaps off the screen. It's like really unnerving to watch. Here, I would say. I, I'm with you. Like, I there was never a doubt in my mind that he was evil. One of the things I did like, though, about his performance here is I did feel like he's someone who always seems to know what's going on. And even if you don't completely trust him, I did feel like there was like, well, at, but if I can get that on my side, then it will be an advantage to me. I don't know if the film did enough with that, but I at least appreciated that about the performance. Yeah, that could have been an interesting element if it had been explored more, sure. but it really wasn't. There's just like yeah. that one line that he gives where he's just where that Chalamet gives where he's just like, I can't trust any of these people. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. we're not really seeing that in any of the scenes though. <laughs> like, yeah. we're just like, he's just taking it at face value in the moment. And then you're just like, all right, it, it, I don't know. It just, there was a lot of missed opportunity in this movie, I yes. think is my final thought. Um, any final thoughts from you, Matt? This is a half joke, half serious thing. But um, I have a running theory on my podcast about that my friend Marissa and I talk about a lot that our theory that straight men don't understand how sex works. <laughs> and this movie's sex scene did further. Oh, you're not further, wrong. Yeah, it, this movie's sex scene did further um, make me agree with that theory because I just watched it and I was like, it was like the least sexy sex scene I've, I think I've ever watched that I, I was a little confused. <laughs> I would just say, as my final thoughts, I, as a fan of David Michaud's first two films, I think he needs to go back to Australia and make a film there because those <laughs> are the films of his that have meant the most to me and I've been kind of disappointed with the last two. Uh, but my, yeah. my final thought is, to paraphrase Robert Pattinson, this film has giant swinging balls but a very tiny car. <laughs> That's honestly not a bad way to sum it up. <laughs> I know we've talked for quite a while now, but uh, hopefully we can still muster some opinions on Shakespeare performances and what we think makes them effective, especially for actors, at least the certain, certainly what I was thinking about was like seeing actors do Shakespeare who you don't even necessarily associate with Shakespeare. And <laughs> sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But uh, I just wanted to kind of get your takes on, on what you think makes a good Shakespeare performance. It's funny you mentioned like what we usually expect and don't expect from a Shakespeare performance. Like I mentioned before, I feel like a lot of people had this idea that Shakespeare is like Ian McKellen doing a monologue in like a like a period appropriate costume which it can be which does slap yeah and that is a, that that is great acting in its own right but i think what i love about shakespeare and shakespeare like especially seeing shakespeare live is the way you can take those plays and that beautiful beautiful language and translate it to other settings i saw i think it was 2016 oscar isaac did hamlet at the new york public theater and it is one of the best theatrical pictures i've ever seen in general but it was hamlet was essentially like without changing the dialogue of course reimagined as almost like the best way to describe it like a woody allen movie like they were like like high tension neurotic new yorkers and it was thrilling and gail rankin who's in glow she plays the she-wolf in glow oh, oh she's yeah. in her smell too as one of the bandmates yeah she's, she's in so her good. smell yes she plays ophelia 
And one of Ophelia's very famous monologues where she's reflecting on essentially the idea of does Hamlet like me? Does he not? He's giving me mixed signals. Usually it's performed very traditionally, like Kate Winslet has done it before. And it's like, it's great done traditionally. But Gail Rankin interpreted it in this way where she was playing it as like a stressed out college student, essentially. And while delivering the monologue, she is microwaving and then like eating a entire tray of lasagna <laughs> and like she is shoving lasagna into her mouth as if she's like oh stress eating. <laughs> and it is it is honestly the best shakespearean performance i've ever seen live oh my it is, god we found the sister scene to the chocolate pie from ghost story <laughs> exactly it is so incredible and a lot of people i remember in the reviews criticized that decision and i was like you don't get the play then it is like that is exactly how you reinterpret that character for the setting that you are doing the production that's in. a great take on the scene what it, it is thrilling it is one of the best things so that's what i think people miss on shakespeare of like the performance in this movie direction aside like they're all doing it in such a basic way and i'm like think about what the character like is doing and i just like i don't know i just that's my basic thesis of like okay like, you need to fully grasp what the point of the character yeah. is the core is always emotions and instincts and motivations that are truly universal mm. exactly uh, and exactly. that's why the specific like the like the superficiality of time and place and costume it's just window dressing. Like it, it really, it almost doesn't matter. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I say almost because I think you do need to have a consistent idea of like what is the setting that I'm picking yeah. and why is it, why do I think Hamlet deserves to take place in New York City in the 1990s, for example? Like mm -hmm. you should have, like it, it shouldn't just be random. Um, right. I completely agree. Yeah, but the, the the focus is on very universal emotion. So, like it really like you can you can apply it to any time and place if you're creative enough. One of my personal favorite film adaptations of Shakespeare is Josh Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing, which Ooh, is yes. so basic and minimalistic and scaled down in black and white and takes place in like in a fully modern suburbia McMansion. Uh but it's actually it's like like it's his yeah, house it's right. literally his house and they just made it for fun like i think he said it was like a mini vacation from avengers pre-production um <laughs> but that was in my top five for that year because it was such a perfect setting for the theme of much ado about nothing and like just the simple fact that it's this big mcmansion so there are these long hallways and staircases and rooms that echo and you have all these scenes where these characters are having these supposedly secret conversations in a hallway where you can like hear them halfway across the house. And then you see that a clear, a character is very clearly listening in on the conversation. And that's like a perfect marriage of the core idea of the play with an alternative setting that obviously did not exist at the time that Shakespeare wrote it, but it still fits it like a glove. Yeah. And I, I'm probably echoing things that both of you have said, but like, I do think the, I think the approach has got to be, and it's a, it's a simple thing, but it's just approaching these characters like human beings. Not that these, they have, you have to see them as some, you know, serious, almost like alien, uh, figure or anything like that i think it, it really is about exploring what makes them human and while you know they do talk in a heightened language it was it was heightened for the time too it is modern english well, oh i i get so pissed off when people are like oh old english that's like Shakespeare, like, uh, do you right? want to actually like... <laughs> read old english because it's another language um but uh but like <laughs> yeah but just like bringing up the fact that you brought up like the whedon version i was thinking about i i absolutely love nathan fillion as dogberry because oh my god that is 
I think that is my favorite Nathan Fillion role. What's ever. great about it is it's not like he had to like completely transform. It's like it's taking the things that he's very good at. He's very good at being like kind of goofy and lovable, but also being like very intense when he needs to be. And what's great about that performance is it's almost like he is like truly goofy and lovable, but all, but like trying to affect this sort of seriousness that comes with a character of his station. And that's very well married with the character of Dog, who, Dogberry, who takes himself very seriously and yet is completely ridiculous. So it's not that you have to reinvent the wheel necessarily, but obviously it depends on the character. But you can still use the things that have really helped as an actor outside of Shakespeare for for Shakespeare. Another way that that movie in particular takes like Shakespeare, which obviously was intended for the stage, but then uses the language of film to like add another level of commentary on it. It's such a small detail, but once someone pointed out to me, it's become one of my favorite parts of the movie. For those of you who don't know, Much Ado About Nothing is one of those like mixed identity Shakespeare comedies where like everything gets resolved in the end, but there are the, all these convoluted plot points about characters mistaking uh, people for each other, and one character is uh, played up to be dead for a long period of time and then is revealed at the end to have not been dead. It's basically like a Frasier episode. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> uh, but this guy, one of the, the male characters has this line at the end where he's being sold on the idea of marrying the twin sister of the woman he loved who he thinks is dead. And like the father's pressing him like, would you really love her? Will you truly love her if I give my other daughter to you? And he has this line where he says, and it, this was obviously very typical for the time. I would love her even if she were an Ethiop translation a black person and he's walking forward and the camera is following him as and when he gets to that line you realize there's a black woman standing right behind him just out of focus shooting daggers at him <laughs> and it's just this like he didn't have to do that but it's just this a tiny little moment where they like the the language of cinema is able to add to what was already there in the text and like offer a modern commentary on it without him having to turn to the camera and wink and say well, people sure were racist back then, weren't they? <laughs> well, and to like go back to something that we were talking about just a second ago, in terms of like bringing out the uh, emotions and the humanity of these characters, <clears throat> I kind of always go back to the Baz Luhrmann Romeo plus Juliet from the mid '90s as a great example of that, because like what he did that was just so smart was like Romeo and Juliet is like the ur text of teenage angst in like the Western canon. Mm. And so he yeah. finds like the two like most iconic teenage actors of that era, Claire Danes and Leonardo DiCaprio. And he puts them in a modern context where they can really just like explode with life and emotions. All of this language that like every eighth grader has read in their, <laughs> in their uh, English class. And it just is so compelling and it works so well. And they don't even try to make it like staid or reserved or anything. They're like, Oh, this is a serious Shakespeare play. They just put all of this like, emotion and melodrama and angst into those performances and it feels so real and you can just buy into that world immediately even though it's just such a a surreal world that is being created where they're just like telling the entire Romeo and Juliet story in about Verona and all that in modern day Los Angeles and it just that's it's a crazy idea that shouldn't work with when they don't even when they don't change anything about the script but it does it works fantastically because it's grounded in those characters and in those performances that are just so relatable and iconic like from the second that they come out on screen that that's a great call like the both of those actors 
just nail like the immaturity of their characters. Like they both have great like crying moments that just are like insane, but totally work because that's the level the movie's working on. And then also the Baz Luhrmann film gets that Romeo and Juliet is not really a love story, even though that's how most people it's about horny teenagers it's like like the movie fully gets that and it's not even trying to be this love story on like a real level it's being a teenage love story that's driven by hormones and it's like you know i get so tired of the way Romeo and Juliet is mostly depicted as like this movie about or this story about exactly and it's like that's not quite it you need like i remember i i didn't see it so i don't want to pass judgment on the production itself but orlando bloom did Romeo and juliet like a few years ago when he was like in his mid-30s and i was like i refuse on principle because it's like <laughs> like having someone that old play romeo is just completely missing the point of what that play is about <laughs> even like little touches that um don't always carry because they're just little things but baz lorman does in romeo and juliet to go back to that because i think that movie is a masterpiece the way he interprets Juliet's parents like I don't even know her name and my phone is not working but um the woman who plays Juliet's the woman who plays Juliet's mom is like channeling like this like cougar crossed with like a trophy wife sort of thing and it's exactly the way to play it opposite Paul Sorvino playing this like intense like mobster type for Juliet's father and I just think it's like you need to grasp what level Shakespeare is operating on because otherwise you like you miss so much great drama like it's like you don't get the full appreciation of what he's doing if you don't really think about every single person that speaks in his play uh Diane Venora is the yes, actress by the way amazing I yeah. really I I like watch her performance next time anyone watches or rewatches that movie Br- she's brilliant she's so so good she's also really good in heat she's like one of those actresses that was big in the 90s and just like disappeared Yes, mm. and it's a shame. The other thing, another thing I wanted to add, just about like with regard to performance, is like it's okay to have a lack of pretension. If if anything, it's preferred um, because you're dealing with, especially I, I think, because his works have been so highly regarded and like to you know to hyperbolic terms even i just think there's this sense that like oh there needs to be this like you need to give it like the proper reverence and seriousness and really it's about you know what's interesting about the character but also like really exploring like every dimension of them i think there are some shakespeare performances where you can tell like the performer is like has like locked into a certain okay okay i want to get this across as the character and really a lot of these characters are very dynamic. I know like on this podcast when we talked about, well, <laughs> this was actually quite early in this uh, podcast history because this was before Alex had even officially joined us. Um, well, so we talked about uh, two versions of Hamlet in uh, celebration of Shakespeare's I can't remember what number anniversary, um, but because I can't remember what year it was. <laughs> So we talked about the, I should say, we talked about the Olivier version from 1948 and we talked about, yes, uh, so it was a, yes, it was a television adaptation of the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, production. So it was the the same cast as the actual play, like when it was playing um, on, on the, yes, so they, 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 they found a way to film it. Uh, Gregory Duran, who uh, was the director. But what I thought was fascinating, just seeing like different interpretations of the same characters, you'd get like 
a lot of the Olivier performances I thought were like very like not just traditional, but almost like if you read like a Cliff Notes version of the play, you would see the performance. Say, oh, yeah, that's like that. That fits that. And then you get like the Duran version, which is like really just I felt like really exploring not just think like things in the text, but also looking at them from like new angles and taking these scenes and kind of like you mentioned before, Matt, about like, let's do this scene. But she's like stress eating. Yeah. Um, you can you can find ways to modernize it in a way that serves the text as opposed to just adding something for the sake of adding it. Seeing like Claudius in the Olivier version to me, like Basil Sidney's per performance, which is not bad, but is very much what you would expect of that kind of character. He's duplicitous, but to the point where it's like almost like too obvious. And then you have something like Patrick Stewart's interpretation of that same character in the newer version, which is much more close to the vest, but also is about kind of like constantly changing his strategy from moment to moment. It just shows that there is this richness of these characters where there is, there should be the freedom to performing these characters where you can explore. And while I do think there are, as there is with performing any character, there are, you know, not every answer is correct. <laughs> not, not every performance like makes sense, but like there's so, I think there's so much leeway within the framework that Shakespeare gives you. I, I, I agree. There are so many interesting ways to interpret Shakespeare plays that like, no one like seems to be doing it like as much as I would like. I'm very curious <laughs> about the Cohen brothers. Like, um, actually, it's just one. It's one. Just one Cohen. Um, I think just Joel Cohen. Yes, doing um Hamlet. No Macbeth. I'm sorry. He's doing Macbeth for A24 yeah. with Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, and that is something that I'm like, you know, they haven't really any details about that yet. But that's exactly like they'll have the imagination. I think to do something interesting, especially Denzel, who is, like, loves Shakespeare. Like, he's, like, one of the, like, most, like, forefront actors, especially, like, in the A-list, who loves Shakespeare, has done it on Broadway many times, was nearly going to do King Lear on Broadway, but stepped down because Glenda Jackson did King Lear, and she was phenomenal. I think it's, like, we need more, like, auteurs and more great A-list actors using their power to, like, mm. make these interesting adaptations, because, I don't know, I just think... I, I really think the Coens could do something interesting. I don't. I can't imagine they're going to do a straightforward Macbeth. To be honest, like I think I I don't know what what it's going to entail. <laughs> yeah, I hope they do. I do hope they keep the text, like the original. And I think Denzel's involvement makes me think they will. Do we have any like ideal actors or directors we'd like to see tackle Shakespeare? I wonder. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would really like to see Jeff Nichols get take a crack at a Shakespeare drama. Ooh. Like if he all his movies have such like have his characters have just this like dramatic like swell of emotion and there's just so much like under the surface of his films that are really powerful and they're always based in family and in trauma and it, I just feel like that could be like a really good match. I would I don't know enough about Shakespeare to to pick the perfect project for him, but I feel like I would really sign up to see his version of of a Shakespeare tragedy. Mm. 
Ava doing the Merchant of Venice. That would be fun. I'd love to see her do Othello. I think Daniel Kaluuya would be an incredible Othello if I'm just going to fan cast yes. the film myself. <laughs> um, I, oh, um, this is such a basic mm. answer, and I think he's probably done it, but like Tom Hiddleston would be good, I think. Um, <laughs> like, I'm, like, it's the sort of thing I feel like he's definitely done it before because it's almost too obvious. Or, or Jude Law. Yeah. <laughs> Oh. He's like one of those actors who was made to do Shakespeare. Like, I don't love him as an actor yeah. of other things, but like he was put on this earth. He'd be a perfect Edmund of Gloucester too. That's I can't believe he hasn't played that role. <laughs> it's like the one he was born to play. And um, I just saw Doctor Sleep, but Rebecca Ferguson would be incredible as Bianca. Yeah, she she's actually someone who feels like she would be right at home in a Shakespeare adaptation. I think it's insane that we haven't gotten a Hamlet with Timothy Chalamet. Um, as Hamlet, he's like, yeah. It's funny he did this one because I'm like, you were put on this earth to be Hamlet. Like he embodies the sad boy, like emoness that is Hamlet, and I just think it's it's <laughs> wild to me he hasn't done it. Do like a uh, a modernized version of it set amongst like a rich family somewhere <laughs> with um Holly Hunter as Gertrude, and I would be there opening night to be honest. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh god make Sarah Ronan play um Ophelia and I'd be there it'd be incredible <laughs> even though Beanie Feldstein has more Ophelia energy I think but <laughs> <laughs> yes Jeez. oh my god I would absolutely be there who would play the titular <laughs> shrew <laughs> God, Julia Stiles was so was so good in Ten Things I Hate About You in that version of it. I I just keep going back to her, even though she's about twenty years too old to play the part now. Um, oh my god, I can't think. Like, there's someone. Yeah. I I need to maybe Florence Pugh. I don't know. Well, I mean, sure. Yeah, Florence, let, Florence Pugh makes a ton of sense. Let Janelle Monae do it though. Yeah. I'm sure. Let her play the entire taming the shrew with Janelle Monae in every part. I feel like it's pretty obvious, but I just know, like, I feel like Jerome Flynn would be right at home playing one of Shakespeare's clowns. I just think that's, like, perfect. I mean, he basically has done it, just, you know, <laughs> not in an actual Shakespeare play. <laughs> Another obvious one that I keep thinking of is um, anyone from Succession doing any Shakespeare play. Like, it's like, Succession basically is Shakespeare, and um, <laughs> every one of those actors could do something interesting, I think. Like... He's a little old, but Jeremy Strong as Hamlet would be very interesting. Um, hmm. Jay Smith Cameron, who is my like absolute favorite person in succession. She's I think, the best. Playing Gertrude, be there opening night. <laughs> Ooh. If she's playing Gertrude, then uh, Karen Culkin should be playing Hamlet. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Jeremy, <laughs> take that. Take my Jeremy Strong. Put Karen Culkin in the part. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like we, we definitely had a lot to say about that, which I am very happy about. But I think we'll probably wrap it up there. So let's. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The most anyone has talked about the king. <laughs> but uh, let's talk about where we can find everybody these days. So uh, why don't we start with you, Matt, with our guest? Where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at MattNotMatthew1. I'm on Letterboxd at MattT. And you can listen to me on the Breakcast, the PopBreak.com's official podcast. We have a few series on that feed. So I'm in um, 
two the two early Oscar podcast episodes, which analyzed the Oscar race, um, like every other week we try to record, and then um, starting in December, the second season of and the winner still is will start going um being available. It's an Oscar retrospective podcast that explores previous Oscar years. We do eight episodes per season, so um, in the upcoming season we'll be doing. The 1996 with The English Patient, 1979 with Kramer versus Kramer, which Alex guest starred in, and yes. um, a bunch of other great um, years. So definitely look out for that in December. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to hearing that. Where can we find you, Noah? The cast of Maleficent would make a really good Shakespeare cast. Oh my gosh, that okay, yeah, we'll we'll like we'll, Chiwetel uh, Ejiofor, we'll Angelina Jolie, <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer, Elle Fanning. Come on, that would be a great. Uh, I'd be there. Hey, even oh, even Harris you... Dickinson. <laughs> yeah, even absolutely. Dickinson would be good. Uh, let's go to me. Uh, you can <laughs> find me at cinemaverick.com. I am also on Letterboxd at the Cinemaverick. And now we will go to Alex. So you can find me on Twitter. And on Letterboxd, at Media Thinkings. You can also follow my work over on Matt's website, thepopbreak.com, where I've been writing about TV. Uh, I've been doing, I've been covering some streaming shows, some network premieres, and I talk about the CW superhero shows every week. So you can check my work out over there. Uh, you can follow our show on Twitter at Cinema Joes and on Instagram at Cinema Joes for visual companions to every episode. And you can listen to us over on Anchor or Google Podcasts or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or most other places that deliver podcasts to your ears. Fantastic. And I do want to say, I've having read some of your articles, it's really nice to like read about a show that I have like had no clue even existed and <laughs> just be like, okay, well, I've gotten like the, the general idea of like what it is and uh, if I if it's worth my time, which is oh, really nice. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That is the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for covering the mor- the morning show, which um, no one else was able to do. And I'm happy to know what it's like without having to subscribe. <laughs> yes. Well, we want to thank all of our listeners and our subscribers. Please follow us if you can. But uh, for right now, for the Cinema Joes, this is Justin signing off.